You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1990 film The Exorcist 3. So before we get into the plot summary, some people are probably getting a little confused. As last year we did The Exorcist, but why are we jumping to three yeah. instead of two? A little bit of backstory. So Exorcist 2 came out in the late, I think, 1977. But that was, so the original was directed by William Friedkin. The screenplay and the novel, which it's based on, was written by William Peter Blatty. They had no involvement in the second movie. The only person from the first that came into the second was Linda Blair as Reagan. Yeah. Um, it was horribly reviewed by everybody. William Freakin watched it and walked out immediately. Blatty was infuriated at what they did. Um, John Borman, the director of the second movie, who's done great stuff like Deliverance and Point Blank, among others... He had no affi- he had no affinity for the first film, so you're, you're thinking, why do you even direct the sequel if you don't like the first one? So Blatty was so infuriated by this, he wrote a novel in the early '80s called Legion, and it picks up not with Reagan's story, but the character of Kinderman, the officer that was investigating what was going on. And Father Dyer, who was a friend of Father Karras, who passes on the very end of the first movie, we see them start a friendship. And seven years later, um, Blatty wanted to direct a adaptation of his novel Legion. The thing is, though, because it's connected to The Exorcist, the studios are saying, you got to call it The Exorcist 3 or nobody's going to want to watch it. If you call it Legion, nobody's going to see it. So he called it Exorcist 3. So there's your backstory. Yeah, and, you know, it. it I, I vaguely remember watching the second one and... and thinking, boy, this is just god-awful. This is terrible. And it is an interesting backstory because um, this is a uh, a sequel. This third one is a sequel, you know, that does t- uh, tie up loose ends and, and um, take up where the first film left off. And it, it picks up a lot of the same themes as well. I'm going to mm-hmm. tell you right now, you're probably going to hear me repeating myself from uh, this time last year is when we did Exorcist. It was... Uh, uh, during the month of October, we like to do Halloween-related films, and so you're you're going to see it again. And I, I think this this film, while not of the quality of the first one, there are certain parts of it that I think didn't quite measure up. Uh, mm. A little bit silly at points, um, but well, still, I mean, in general, I liked it, and I actually think the dialogue was uh, a little bit more exploratory of the the philosophical themes that that the first film did engage, but they didn't have people discussing them. And one of the things I really like about the film is the uh, friendship between uh, Kinderman and Dyer. It really works. And uh, you can see there are two men that have had a lot of life experience and in particular dealing with the problem of evil. And uh, 
uh, they haven't been beat down by it, as it were. There's a lot of humor in that uh, relationship mm-hmm. still, but they have that interesting discussion uh, a, a couple of times in the film. And, and I, I, my regret is I, I kind of wish they didn't kill Dyer off. I, I would have liked to mm-hmm. seen these two work together yeah. uh, through the balance of the film. Um, but in general, I liked it. I thought it's still a pretty good film. Yeah, so and uh, we should be noted that Blatty not only wrote this film, but he also directed it. It's only one of two films he directed. He did another adaptation of his work called The Ninth Configuration, which came out about 10 years earlier. But um, So this film takes place about 15 years after the events of The Exorcist. And Dyer and Kinderman meet every anniversary of the death of Karis, sort of just to reminisce and sort of cope. And they even say, we're trying to cheer the other one up. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah. a great little thing. Each one tells, where are you going? To some other friend, right? And that's, yeah. I'm, going to, I'm going to cheer up Dyer. I'm going to cheer up Kinderman. It's the yeah. anniversary, you know. But while this is happening, though, there is a killer on the loose and... The killings are very gruesome, and what's what I appreciate about the film is that it's never shown. They're yeah. very horrific, the way that it's described, and it's the performances, particularly by George C. Scott, the gravity of which he's viewed him and how horrible, but it's never shown, which yeah. I would appreciate. Yeah. Because other horror films would have gone and gone for that gore scare or the, you know, the visceral, oh, God, that's horrible, I can't believe that, but this one, it's... They don't show it. Pretty much they don't. But when they do kind of cross over into showing it, that's when the film, for me, loses a little bit of the quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and the final exorcist scene, for instance. Yeah, when, we'll talk about that because there's a lot yeah, of backstory. There's a, there's a lot that. of gruesomeness there. And um, they show you uh, visually uh, uh, one of the victims, the, the boy, right? And that didn't work. I, I think they... That's where it kind of went over the edge for me. But in general... In the dream sequence or the... No, it's... It, at to, the very end. At the very okay. end, yeah, at the yeah. exorcism, when he comes up out of the floor yeah. after the lightning had struck. I, I thought it was... A, a, yeah. a, it came across as a B-movie at that point. It, it, I think it's much more effective, like you said, when they just simply describe it. It's very powerful when the guy that plays the Gemini killer, I cannot recall his name. Uh, Brad Dourif, who people might remember as the tragic character in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, Uh, he does an excellent job. And he really brings to life the joy and sadism that they're trying to portray, not only in the person of that Gemini killer, but his master, Satan, right? Yeah. And just his joy in torturing other people, in particular, Karis, and the descriptions of how he went about the killings, which we will not go into in this podcast because it is a PG-rated podcast. But uh, again, a very effective job of portraying that that reveling in gratuitous Mm -hmm. violence just for the purposes of it, the quintessential evil. Um, they do a good job with that. Yeah, and the plot is that these killings have the same modus operandi of uh, the Gemini killer who was terrorizing that area in the 70s. Now he was caught and sent to the electric chair. The problem is the killings and the what's being shown is exactly the way it was with the Gemini killer. The thing is they hid those actual motives from the press to weed out any copycats or nutjobs trying to 
confess. Yes. So they have to figure out, and is eventually found out that the main thing is it's connected to this guy in the um, cell in a hospital. And he says 15 years ago, he wandered around in a daze. He was pretty much catatonic, but lately he's been waking up. It's revealed that the body is of Father Karras. Yes. And then after that, uh, Pazuzu, the demon from the first movie, was cast out of his body. They tried to reincarnate with the soul of the Gemini killer so they can... And he's using these catatonic patients because it's easier to access them because they've lost their mental capacity to commit these horrific killings and then they go right they're able to escape right back to where they were and nobody would suspect them because they're catatonic yeah and so it goes a bit of a cat and mouse and but and this is the one part of the movie that yeah we'll talk about but there is the another exorcist another father he gets a sign and at the end he reaches out and goes into this and performs the exorcist to get the demon out of Karis. Kinderman shows up. The exorcist is nearly killed, but right before he dies, he casts this spell thing uh to get Karis to he's trying to get Karis to fight it. Right. Karis gets through a bit at the end and tells Kinderman to shoot him now, and he kills him, and then that's the end of the movie. They've stopped. Yeah. That it's interesting because that whole section with the exorcist was not wanted by Blatty. That was not in his novel. Hmm. Um, that was mandated by the studio because they're saying, this is an exorcist movie. You got to have yeah. an exorcism. He was not happy with that at all. And recently, I think, because this film's been getting a lot of reevaluation in the last few years because of the director's cut that came out. And... Uh, to be honest, though, although I'm not a fan of the way this movie ends, I'm also not very much of a fan of the way the director's cut ends because it's just more of the talking. But at the end, Kinderman just grabs out a gun and shoots the Gemini killer and kills him. And that's how the movie ends. And that feels just very anticlimactic. So yeah. uh, you have two movies, yeah, and I don't think they neither of them really have a solid ending, which I really enjoyed this movie, and I feel like if you could just... Work that ending, I think this would be mentioned as good as The Exorcist. Yeah, they, they shouldn't have pasted The Exorcism on, on top of the original story. Um, I do like I, I do like the fact that um, um, it, it talks a little bit about possession, right? And you have the uh, the person of the Gemini killer. Um, the, the 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 reason he has uh, uh, been aided in his possession of Karis's body is because the master likes the way he did his work, right? So you have this very interesting discussion um, that uh, details the difficulties that are involved in moving into and possessing a body. And we uh, learn later in the film that this, uh, uh, as it were, the soul of the Gemini killer is jumping from the Gemini killer into patients in that hospital who do the various killings. And that's the way it's been working. And it's not portrayed as just being something easy to do, right? Because uh, as a philosopher, I, I, I watch this and I'm thinking, oh, there's a little bit of a Cartesian presupposition here. Uh, there's a very stark difference between uh, the world of spirits and the material world. And it's difficult for the spirit to 
interact with and become part of a physical body to do its work. And they kind of discuss that there in, in the, uh, toward the end of the film when Kinderman is talking to uh, that spirit in um, Karis's body. Uh, found that to be very interesting. And uh, at the same time, kind of realistic. It's not a simple, possession is not simple, right? Mm -hmm. uh, both in the moral aspect, but also in that metaphysical aspect. I appreciated that. And I think that shows um, uh, William Peter Blatty's, uh, he, he's thought these issues through very carefully. And you see that from what I understand in the novels, even more so. And I, yeah. I would have liked to see them capture more of that. Um in the film, now you might disagree. It would turn out to be too dialogic, too didactic, perhaps. I, but I, I think it would be I great. Think, yeah, I do think that what's strong about this film is the dialogue because we have. I mean, interesting in the book. I remember um, Kinderman goes on more of his views of life, like he um, talks more about what who Lucifer is and what possessions are, and he's particularly enamored by a book. Uh, the, father, the brothers Karmazov. Yes. He it's his favorite novel. Yeah. He talks about life and how it relates to that novel. Oh, that's nice. In the book. And you don't have that. I can somewhat kind of agree. Maybe that would have been a little bit too much of the dialogue, but it's very it's very sharp. It was, like I, I, we mentioned, the first like 20 minutes when it's him and Father Dyer are, are hilarious. I mean, I, I never thought I would have to pause an Exorcist movie because I'm laughing so much. <laughs> yeah. But the part where... Dyer's talking about the lemon drops and he's like you know the, the kids breathe that on me in the pot and between those two I see the lemon drops are probably more addictive and they're going to see I guess they do this on a regular basis they're going to see it's a wonderful life nice touch you know mm -hmm. two, two old guys two close old friends and um, I wish they had developed that more yeah. I really do and I do love that other scene when it's Dyer and he's talking to the head of the Georgetown with a head priest, and he's like, "What are you? What are your plans today?" And he goes, oh, "I'm going to see a wonderful life." Oh, great movies! Like, yeah, I've seen it over 36 times. And he goes, "That's commendable." Yeah. And he goes, "So, what's your favorite movie?" He just says, "The Fly." Yeah. <laughs> just just, so just this funny, yeah, it's funny humor, definitely. You like, need, like we had, like we talked about the first Exorcist when you have that witty banter with Kinderman and Karis, and then later with Dyer when he goes on that. You know, I, I'm going to see this movie. Groucho Marx is playing Hamlet, and you know Harpo is playing Desdemona. And you know, I've yeah. already seen it. You know, yeah. that, but you see, you need that because the rest of the film is gets dark and bleak. Yeah, and and you know they they have more serious conversations too, and I, I think there's a underlying thread in there that carries over from those early conversations toward the uh, and, and they're tied up and uh, toward the end of the film. When uh, and kind of in a bantering way, uh, Kinderman, when they're in that restaurant, you know, says, you know, the the world is basically a murder factory. Do, would really an all good God uh, uh, set things up to be that way, to where we all have to suffer and die? What, what's the point of that, uh, uh, Father? And and, and Dyer, Dyer says, well, you know, it all works out in the end. We we're, we actually don't die. We're immortal, right? And and uh, uh, Kinderman says, "Boy, I wish I could believe that." He even right? says that soon, huh? Yeah, yeah. But it, it's it, again good-natured bantering. Uh, you can you can clearly tell Kinderman's more of a secular kind of guy, and and but he he's not necessarily comfortable with it and mm -hmm. wants to believe. And he is background. And, he is Jewish. Yeah, that's true. And 
then toward the end of the film, you, you have you have the the Gemini character uh, say to him, uh, "I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do something to restore your faith." Isn't that what he says? I forget mm-hmm. the exact quote. Um, so you're wondering what does that mean exactly? And you know the, the there's another powerful scene where he, uh, Kinderman's describing what the killer did to the boy. Mm-hmm. And, and it's after they just had that conversation about the problem of evil and particularly gratuitous evil. And there's really, again, only done verbally. And that's what makes it so powerful. He describes what he did. And you can see this look come over Dyer's face like, oh, my God, I don't I don't know if I can square that with God being good. Why would he allow that? You see that thought cross his face testament to the actor's portrayal but mm-hmm. but then it's brought up again later in the film when during this crazy exorcism scene right when um um the master and the gemini ki- killer are torturing uh the kinderman character and he says have i re- have i restored your faith right and he says yes you have you restored my faith in evil pain suffering so forth and mm-hmm. uh, that that scene makes you it does make you question uh, what exactly uh, Kinderman has ended up in in terms of his his beliefs. Um, yeah. It's powerful, and it, it drives home that point that even even for people that do strongly believe in God, there are cases of things that happen in the world that are so evil and so gratuitously evil, and apparently without good purpose, that it becomes very difficult for them to accept it yet they don't want to give up on god's mm-hmm. existence and it makes you ask because the very at the end of the first film you could say good has won uh, father Karras, along with um max von Sydow's character i forget his name yeah but at the end even though at the cost of Sydow's life and Karras's life they were able to exercise the demon pazuzu from uh, Reagan's body, she has been saved. Even though the horrible things that were done to her, she has been saved, and she is now allowed to live her life. And we're going to disregard what happens in the sequel. But um, in this movie, it makes you think: was good triumphant because that what happened to Karis was he was immediately occupied again by Pazuzu, along with the spirit of the Gemini killer, mm-hmm. and not, and they took them fifteen years, but eventually they succeeded in committing horrible acts of violence, and the Gemini was allowed to continue. Yeah. So I, in this one, I would say overall the demon was victorious. He wanted to cause horrific violence and mayhem, and he won. And it's I think it's more so at the ending of the novel. Because it's revealed that the Gemini killer, what would sort of set him down his path of being a horrible monster, was he was horribly abused by his minister father. Yeah. That's it, described in the scenes in the novel. But it's not in the film. It, yeah. it's. Yeah. But it was shown that was the motive for his killings early on, was to get back at his father. Yeah. And at the end of the book, the minister father has finally died. And that is when... Um, the Gemini and Pazuzu kill the sp- kill the body of Karis and leave. They feel that their work is done, and then they stop. Hmm. So they don't get stopped by the heroic acts of Kinderman or the Exorcist because there's no Exorcist in the book. Yeah, they choose to stop. 
That's so, and interesting. That is one I feel that I they won completely because they could not have they could not be stopped and only stopped because they chose to stop. And yeah, and even in terms of the film, I, I wouldn't say necessarily they won, but uh, it's uh, the status quo remains. Right, you, you never entirely vanquish evil, and even even in the presuppositions that are built into the film, I think that's the case because we're not left with any kind of reassurance that the spirit of the Gemini killer or the master, uh, just because Bill has killed Karis's body, that they've ceased to exist. I mean, my, the first thought that jumps to my mind is, okay, they're going to just simply jump into somebody else's body and do mm-hmm. some more heinous acts. And again, I think that's reflective of uh, uh, a kind of recognition that um, at least for our world, right? I mean, Dyer might put it that way. At least Mm -hmm. for our world, there is no elimination of evil. It's always going to be there. And uh, we have to learn how to deal with it, uh, quell it as best we can. Uh, But the question remains, why does it have to be there? Right? Is there some some kind of, is it a necessary ingredient in some sort of a you know greater good that God's bringing about? And if so, is that a limitation that He can't bring it about without allowing evil to exist? You know, and this is a big old ancient topic in in theology and philosophy. You know, uh, it seems it seems easy enough for us to conceive of a universe that does does not contain Satan, right? And it seems easy easy. Uh, for us to be able to conceive of God choosing to create such a universe. He didn't have to create Satan. At least it seems like it. So the question remains, well, why did he? And that that question is just underneath the surface of this film with these two main characters. They're both yeah. thinking the same, thinking about that same sort of thing as they go through the process of processing mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the gratuitous and uh, uh, sacrilegious nature of these crimes. And there is a kind of a cruel, I would say, reflection of the real-life basis because this is called the Gemini Killer. Um, Blatty uh, based this off the Zodiac Killer, which this was not meant to be on purpose, but has recently made the news because a team of forensic investigators believe they finally found the identity of the killer. And it's, I don't, well, I don't know if a hundred percent, but they say they're a hundred percent that this guy is without doubt the Zodiac. And he commented on the Exorcist. He was very he you know, used the media to get what he wanted. And he commented on The Exorcist saying he loved the film or was a favorite film of his. Yeah. He also was said he was outraged by the violence in Terrence Malick's Badlands, which that was that movie is based on a real-life killer. Mm-hmm. I think you had that. And this movie itself was a particular favorite of Jeffrey Dahmer. Apparently he would show people who would later kill the movie before he killed them. So it has this cruel reflection of people who are like the Gemini killer. Now, I want to point out, I do not feel that this film inspired Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't believe that this film inspires killers, but it has that cruel reflection. Well, apparently it did, though. I'd have to disagree with you there. It did. Now, they certainly didn't intend, they didn't set out to inspire real-life killers. Oh, I I would say, I think... Dahmer was already set down his life. I don't yeah. think he watched oh. The Exorcist three and then decided True. I'm going to be a serial. True. He, killer. he was he was doing terrible things as a young child. That's yes. for sure. 
the path um, was already set. Yeah, uh, but you know, it, it does raise an interesting question. Um, uh, and I remember this coming, this reaction, and we discussed this coming up when we did watch the first Exorcist because it had been many years since I'd seen it, and I had seen a cleaned-up television version of oh, it. Yes. And uh, uh, the question, I think, another question that comes up with these films that do uh, present a level of gratuitous violence, even if it's, o- even if it's only verbally described, by the way, mm-hmm. as it is in this film, uh, it does raise that question, you know, it should, should this be portrayed? And uh, are, we, are we putting people at risk of some kind of moral harm by portraying it, even though it's fiction? It has a coarsening effect. You know, and this, again, is an ongoing uh, debate that has mm-hmm. been going on at least since the time of Plato in terms of fiction. Um, you know, there's, there's certainly value in, in portraying these sorts of things because it does lead to it, philosophical it, and ethical and theological discussions. But at the same time, it, 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 I think we also have to admit that being exposed to these, these things does necessarily, I think it's necessarily a psychological re- reaction to it. it. It does have a coarsening effect on individuals and on society. There's no easy answer for that. I just, I I noted in. I would say when it shows the horrific violence, even in the first movie with the acts that were done to Reagan, it shows it in the proper horrific light. It is not meant to glorify or make it look appealing. And even you could see, then then the counter argument was like, what about somebody like Quentin Tarantino, especially in scenes like Kill Bill when all the violence going on there? That is extremely stylized not realistic movie it's movie violence i yeah. think there's a diff there's a great difference between movie violence and violence in real life and i don't believe that somebody watching something like a kill bill or even something like the exorcist that is going to set them down this path of becoming a horrific murderer or committing a horrible act of violence like i know people blame the matrix for what happened in columbine or they blame the music of heavy metal music and i i don't believe that well there are certain pieces of music that will drive you to insanity like the carpenters <laughs> the, no no um muskrat love yeah. <laughs> you probably don't even know what that is no. that's way back way back awful awful song um but um, you know, again, uh, I, I, I think I would just point out that uh, it, it, it's it's like a, a almost a law of nature that exposure, even to fictional uh, instances of um, uh, portrayal of violence, I, I still think it has a coarsening effect on people. There are reasons we don't let kids watch this stuff. Well, then that is the it's not the fault of the filmmaker. It's the fault of people saying, hey, this person maybe shouldn't be watching this, whether they're too young for it or because of their state of mind. Maybe this isn't the right film for them. Yeah. And but I, I'm just yeah. simply just Doesn't pointing mean we out shouldn't that, make these movies. No, no, they do need to be made. And, and especially ones that bring up historical episodes of horrific behavior they need you know we 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 should not be allowed to forget those kinds of things and clearly an example the holocaust would be something mm-hmm. and schindler's list needed to be made because mm-hmm. people tend to forget these things or deny them and i i think that's part of the value of this particular of these two films anyway blatty's exorcist both of the films i i, I think they are a reminder to us that evil exists and that it must be fought even if it does come down to a, a kind of a 
standstill status quo. Uh, uh, you can't completely eliminate it. Still, we're duty bound to try. And, and I think that comes mm-hmm. through very strongly in both of these films. And yeah, at the very end of the film, when you have Kinderman tell, like, I believe in murder and yeah. this and that, I wonder if by the end he's been completely broken. I, yeah, and that's what, that's, it, it's, that's an interesting question because, you know, you do see sometimes in, in people that are in professions that are, uh, uh, swathed in violence right or swathed in um tragedy they burn out and uh, sometimes have similar thoughts to those that he expresses and that that film leaves it unclear you know and he uh, uh, in that respect we don't know if he's um totally lost even a modicum of faith that good will triumph or that God exists. Um, but we also are left, I think, purposefully in suspense as to this, the status of the master and the Gemini killer, because they clearly have not been killed, even though Karis has been killed. He just happened to be the most recent container. Um, and I think he's done that on purpose. There's no simple happy ending. There's no simple easy solution for the problem of the existence of evil, but we are duty bound to try and fight it. And I think that's probably Blatty's uh, ultimate message. All right. So getting close to the end of my questions here, is there anything else we should bring up? I did one of the things, cause I don't like the ending of this movie, just like you did. And I, one thing I, cause we talk about the lack of, actually showing the violence but one of the things i really didn't like is when the exorcist gets killed he gets killed in a pretty gruesome fashion yeah and that's like you're undoing everything what made the work so well and that of course that was something that was mandated by the studio but i don't because the act talk about the director's cut but the problem with the director's cut is the restored scenes or the alternate scenes are filmed or used in this uh, bad vhs quality which makes him almost unwatchable because um, Jason Miller, the actor that plays Father Cares, he returns in this movie. He's barely even in the director's cut. It's mostly Doriff, but all the scenes with Doriff are these VHS qualities, and it's unwatchable. Hmm. Interesting. I I didn't see the director's cuts. I, I don't know um, uh, if, if it does it add anything to it. No, because yeah. the ending, like I said, is very anticlimactic because he just gets. Kinderman just gets a gun and shoots the Gemini yeah. killer, and that's See, the end. That's of it. far less powerful, I think, than that the fact that Karis again is that person fighting evil, and he's he's telling you, you've got to kill me. He's willing to sacrifice himself to do that, and maybe that comes through more in the novel. I don't know, but I found that to be again. I'm pretty sure it's been a while since I've read it, but I'm pretty sure Karis is never really has that chance to. Yeah, break free even just for a second and wow. get through because wow. it's mo- it's pretty much at the end. It's all the Gemini killer. He just well has in that control. case. In that case, I think in that aspect, I would prefer the film, the the message of the film to the book. Even though I think probably overall, uh, as is the case with most novels that are made into films, 
the novel's probably better yeah. because it has more of that dialogue and discussion between the two main characters who are coming at the problem of evil from substantially different points of view. Um, I, I, that's what I really wanted to see them explore. They should not have killed Dyer off. I mean, yeah. I just wanted to see those, would, those two guys working together. I, I just want a whole movie with them on like a road trip and bickering. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find those podcasts and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds. For each episode, I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.automatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Sing so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.